notwithstanding clauses back in the headlines in this country, Saskatchewan, of course, announcing plans to use the clause to protect their decision there to mandate parental consent for name or pronoun changes in kids under 16 at school. Right Now, certainly not the first time that it's been deployed. It was introduced to the Canadian Constitution back in the early 80s. It's been used more than 20 times, in fact. Mostly by Quebec, though, the, the lion's share of times that there's actually just the blanket use of it uh, in Quebec. Uh, but it's being deployed a lot more often lately than it ever was. Um, five times in the last three or four years, as a matter of fact. And now there are lots of different calls, different um, you know, civil rights groups saying it needs to go. Um, this, is, this is a bit of a problem. And I think our next guest shares that opinion. Uh, Jeffrey B. Myers is an instructor in legal studies and criminology at Kwantlen Polytechnic University, also also has a PhD in constitutional law and is a lawyer. Jeffrey, thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate your time. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be on uh, with you and your listeners. Um, let's just start so everybody knows what we're talking about. The uh, notwithstanding clause, what does it say? What does it do? Well, the notwithstanding clause is sometimes what I describe to my students as a, an escape hatch, if you will, in the Constitution. And what it does is it says that um, sections... Um, Two and seven through 15 of the Constitution, we can talk about what those are in a minute, can be suspended by Parliament or a legislature for, for a period of five years, which is renewable, as long as the Parliament or legislature in enacting the legislation explicitly says that it's going to be using the notwithstanding clause to shield the legislation from review by a court for conformity with the Charter. So what that means is you can suspend certain Charter rights for a period of five years, as long as you're explicit about doing it and the courts can't strike down the legislation right it's literally permission to violate the charter of rights or not permission but like you say an escape hatch where you can go ahead and knowingly and publicly violate the charter of rights effectively and it's it's within the constitution itself right so although sometimes i and others use the to say that it's 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 a problem from a rule of law perspective right. it's kind of more of a paradox than a problem because while it presents the possibility of short-circuiting constitutional rights, the Constitution itself permits this. Um, okay, so why do we have it? Where, how did it come about? Why was it introduced back in the early 80s? Well, that's a great question. And the reason it's, it exists is really it's an artifact of the negotiation process led by the federal government of then-Premier Pierre Trudeau and uh, his Justice Minister Jean Chrétien, both obviously important figures in Canadian history, as well as the various provincial premiers. And during that debate, there was a, there was a lot of give and take uh, around a variety of issues, but one of the major sticking points was the concern among some of the provincial premiers, you can imagine Quebec, but not only Quebec, um, that, that ultimately the Supreme Court of Canada would be able to strike down legislation for non-conformity with the Charter. And the idea was that that somehow undermined democracy, at least in the views of some of these more conservative provincial premiers and, and, and of Quebec, in the sense that the courts weren't elected and that appointed judges could be striking down legislation that was promulgated by elected leaders. And so that, that would sort of tip the, the scales, as it were, towards judges and away from elected politicians. So that was the sort of philosophical argument. On the other side of the of the ledger, the argument was that in a in a in a rule of law country, sometimes uh, the excesses of the majority have to be curtailed. So what I mean by that is, if the majority decides that it's going to vote to undermine the rights of a minority there still has to be some kind of safeguard in place to protect the rights of the minority, even if you have a kind of popular 
um, majority in favor of undermining those rights. And that that's the nature of the social contract, that even where it's unpopular, we protect minority right. rights. Yeah. And that view won out largely. However, Section 33, in my opinion, is a kind of fatal flaw in the heart of the Constitution. Um, okay, and, and your concern now, and, and like you say, I mean, literally the reason we have the Charter is to make sure that the rights of the minority are protected. That, that's what it's all about. Um, your concern is the clause that, uh, the way it's being used recently, and like I say, it's being used a lot more frequently than it ever has before. You're concerned that it's going too far and going beyond what it was intended to do, right? Well, I don't, I think that, look, the, the problem was it was a hope and a prayer once the thing was put in there by those who believed in the Charter and thought it was a progressive development for Canada that it would not be abused. Now, early on, Quebec virtually attached it to every single bill they enacted. Later, they started using it more strategically. Of course, Quebec has most recently had one of the most high-profile uh, uses of the notwithstanding law to pass what it calls its secularism law, which is abhorrent to most Canadians because it requires people working in public-facing jobs in the Quebec civil service not wear outward signs of religion, meaning a person who wears a, a yarmulke or a person who wears a turban or a person who wears a hijab can't work as a as a public lawyer or a teacher or a social worker in Quebec. And that again, that's abhorrent to our values, but there's no real way to challenge that. Now the the notwithstanding law, though, has however been sort of threatened to be used uh, more and more frequently by, again, conservative premiers, be it in Ontario um, and uh, most recently in Saskatchewan, Alberta, of course, where your listeners will be interested, has a long history of threatening to use at least the notwithstanding clause going back to the 90s, largely around social issues, particularly the rights of same-sex people. Um, but Saskatchewan has now taken up the mantle over the past several decades. It's changed from a sort of progressive NDP-type province to one of the learning, leading conservative provinces, along with New Brunswick and to some extent Alberta. But they're taking the lead on using the notwithstanding clause here, for example, in response to an injunction issued by a, a trial court in Regina, a court of King's Bench, um, basically saying to the government on application of lawyers for um, a, the University of Regina Pride Group, that the government should not use this policy, should, should is enjoined or stopped from using this policy pending litigation on its constitutionality. Rather than letting that litigation go forward in the normal course, uh, pr Premier Mo has immediately said he wants to trigger the notwithstanding clause uh, to prevent this injunction from having an effect and is going to go ahead with the legislation. I mean, that's an extraordinary usage of the notwithstanding clause, again, for what's largely a divisive uh, electoral political issue for him, but is really a sort of cultural war issue. Um, again, there's no rules around how to use the notwithstanding law, but if premiers are prepared to use this around divisive issues like this, or especially ones where they present the factual issues surrounding the policy with a lot of myths and disinformation and conspiracy, and then to hitch that to the use of the notwithstanding clause in such a reactionary fashion, I think it poses a threat to the strength uh, and um, the power of the Constitution in Canada and potentially, in a broader sense, the rule of law. And as I wrote about in that article, so far no prime minister has used it. Nope. It's a power also available to the federal government. And, you know, I did mention in the article that when, before Mr. Harper became Prime Minister, there was a, you know, sort of public letter and pressure campaign that he not use it, and he sort of acquiesced in that and didn't use it. Mr. Polyev has sort of mused more obliquely about how he might use it. But in an environment where provincial premiers increasingly were using it um, for social issues, um, and particularly sort of ones which I would regard as anti-progressive and reactionary, and again, not sort of fact-based, uh, and where a Prime Minister 
Lester was willing to use it, for example, to change the laws around bail or sentencing in ways which would violate basic provisions in the Constitution, which entitle uh, the accused to you know fair trial and to to bail. Uh, you know, I think we would start to descend into a country which no longer had the values of a Western democracy. Um, and you're not alone. Uh, um, Angus Reid, interestingly, uh, earlier this year did some polling of Canadians, and three in five say they are very concerned or concerned with the popular use of the clause by provincial governments, and uh, more than half, 55%, say they'd like to see it abolished. Is that is that possible? I mean, going in and amending the Constitution in such a way we know is never easy in this country. Is abolishment something that's even realistic? Well, again, the okay. So I mentioned I discussed this at the end of my mm-hmm. article. I mean, the, the this is not something that would require unanimous consent, but it would require basically Two-thirds. what's called the seven fifty um, part of part five of the amending formula thirty eight two. I think it is of our constitution. I know it's a bit nerdy of me to geek out on the numbers. Forgive me, but uh, basically what those do is that they say that you need seven tenths of the uh, seven tenths of the provinces or fifty percent plus of the population. That means the legislatures have uh, those legislatures have to agree with the parliament on the amendment. So that would really involve significant numbers of Canadians asking their premiers to not to agree to get to to agree to amend the constitution this way and lose this power. Typically premiers, especially more conservative ones, they typically don't want to take it off the table, right? Um, so the idea and Ontario is, you know, again, it's it's used it uh, or threatened to use it. Quebec has used it. You know, Saskatchewan's making moves. Um, Alberta's threatened in the past. It's not something that's very, it seems not, not very realistic in the contemporary setting. However, I always object to these kinds of arguments that things are impossible, that they're not pragmatic. You know, it's up to people. It's mm-hmm. up to younger voters, a generational change. I mean, it's normal that constitutions are amended and renewed from time to time. And it's normal that they're harder than regular legislation to change because, again, they're at the fabric of the social contract. But the appropriate way to change the Constitution is not to use the notwithstanding clause. It's to amend it. And that includes for if you want to get rid of the notwithstanding clause. So I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to assume Canadians or future generations of Canadians won't be able to put that pressure on their provincial governments to to support them if they view this as an obnoxious thing. But like you say, there's so much paradox around this. And so because like you say, if... If as uh, a population or as a voting populace, um, Canadians decide that they don't want um, the notwithstanding clause, the likelihood that the provincial government would want to deploy the notwithstanding clause would go down dramatically. I mean, th- this is the whole thing. It's it's it, it, it's constitutional, but it goes directly to violating the Constitution. There's a lot of things that you really have a hard time making sense of around this clause because, like you say, it does work counterproductive to what the Charter was meant to do. So it's very paradoxical. Because some people never wanted the Charter, right? right. Because the idea is, is that when Canada took the turn to adopt a Charter, a Bill of Rights, which could be a, a, a constitutionally embedded Bill of Rights, which could be used to strike down legislation, that moved us in a, in a, a slightly more American Republican-style model, whereby the legislation of government was subject to a written constitution and could be explicitly struck down by the courts in a way that undermined the idea which traditional parliamentarians will call parliamentary sovereignty, the idea that parliamentary or parliament or the legislature within their constitutional realms was supreme. So people, traditionalists, particularly in the provinces, people who believed in strong provincial power, worried that the charter would be used um, to curtail their policymaking right, choices. So they didn't want it in the first place. They negotiated that clause um, into there. And so this is something that gets used, and again, it can be abused. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's a defect in the Constitution. 
Uh, I think there's no question about it. I mean, I think also it's what's to me alarming is because also what I study and what I allude to in the article that you're interviewing me on that I wrote in the conversation about the increased use of the notwithstanding clause is that it corresponds to a tendency not just in Canada but in other Western countries away from judicial review and toward an idea of democracy which is like the majoritarian mob right yeah not no one that protects minorities and if you look you know specifically at the discourse around gender pronouns and so-called parental rights they are largely based on just a a fabulous amount of mis and disinformation and you know that language has been used by Pierre Polyever it's been used by Scott Moe it's been used by New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs and outgoing uh, Premier in Manitoba, uh, Heather Stevenson. And the truth is, in Canada, it's the entirety of family law, you know, is based around the best interests of the children. In fact, there's an international consensus in the Hague Convention on the Rights of the Children, of which Canada is a signatory, that the children's rights are the lodestar. So parental rights are always contingent upon the best interests of the child. And right. where the best interests of the child diverges from the the interests of the parent as they perceive them. It is the child's uh, interests which are permitted. And in this context, we're talking about, you know, children in schools choosing their name, not an official name change, nothing like that. A very, very minor thing, which is so well supported by the expert um, opinion on, you know, children's mental health and trans and, and non-binary kids in particular, who are obviously at very high risk that there's no way this law could withstand charter scrutiny um, so that the need is obviously to use Section 33 to do this. And I mean, again, the threats in the past were around same-sex marriage, around benefits to same-sex folks, at least in the Alberta context, Mm -hmm. so always used uh, as an attack on queer people. It just doesn't pass the sniff test. Yeah, and it is is curious, as you say. It's just basically almost like a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the Charter of Rights. Um, Jeffrey, unfortunately, I'm out of time, but thank you so much for being here. Great conversation. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for getting into it with me. I really appreciate it, too.